0: Repentance is our theme tonight. And for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to take a break from our series in John and our series in Exodus. Just to deal with some issues pertaining to our spiritual formation. Matters of the heart as we endeavor to walk with the Lord. Tonight, repentance is our theme. And repentance is necessary unto salvation the way that the new birth Is necessary unto salvation. It doesn't earn or merit salvation, but no one will be saved who is not born again, and no one will be saved who does not repent. John Owen states it bluntly He that does not truly and really repent of sin, whatever he professes himself to believe, he is no true believer. Now, of course, that does not mean that one must have repented of each and every sin in his life thoroughly and exhaustively prior to his death in order to be saved. It it cannot mean that or else we're all in very big trouble. After all, no one is going to repent of all sin prior to their death. No one is going to repent exhaustively and thoroughly of all their sin prior to their death. For one thing, we're not even aware of all our sin. And so we are unable to repent of it. Mark my words, you are blind to some of your own sin. You don't even know that you need to repent of it. You may see a lot of sin yet to be repented of, but believe me, there's more. And in due time, if you live long enough, the Lord will show you more and more of your sin. But obviously, you can't repent of sin you're not aware of. Secondly, our repentance is never going to be perfectly thorough. While our remaining corruption plagues us. So while we are here on this side of death. Our repentance is never going to be perfectly thorough. In fact I would suggest that probably the more thorough our repentance is. The more susceptible we are to the danger of pride. For just how thoroughly we've repented. And so we find ourselves in this catch 22. Where if we don't repent good enough. It's sinful. But if we repent really well we start to feel proud of it and we have to repent of that as well so we're in a bind you're not going to repent perfectly on this side third we might just up in sin at the last second before being struck by lightning and not have a chance to repent of that particular sin you're at the bus stop and you know a sinful thought crosses your mind And next thing you know, just like uh, that video we saw on the news a little while ago, a van veers off the road trying to make up some extra time. And instead of you moving out of the way, it strikes you and you're dead. And you didn't repent of that sinful thought. So, when I say that repentance is necessary unto salvation, I do not mean that one must have repented of each and every sin in his life thoroughly and exhaustively prior to his death. That's impossible for the reasons I just outlined. We we need not we need to not distort the gospel to make it say that we're saved by the thoroughness of our repentance instead of the finished work of Christ. Let me say that again because it's an important point. We must not distort the gospel to make the gospel the good news that if you repent thoroughly enough and exhaustively enough, you will be saved on that basis instead of on the basis of the finished work of Christ. However, if we are not sincerely endeavoring to repent of all known sin, it may manifest that we have never experienced the new birth. That change of nature whereby we are made to love the Lord And hate our sin. At times and for seasons, even true believers who are regenerate may carry on in a particular sin. Even in, as our confession says, great sins and provocations. Nevertheless, it is also true that as our confession says, in the war between our remaining corruption and our new nature. Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail... Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed to them. So in simpler terms, in other words, true believers eventually repent. If somebody dies in a state of hardness of heart. Where their sin has been pointed out to them. And yet they've made no attempt to repent. And in fact have hardened their heart against rebuke. And against correction. And they die in that state of hardness of heart. We do have grounds to wonder whether that person was a believer at all. We shouldn't go to their funeral and proclaim, well... Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. First John says, No one who keeps sinning has either seen God or knows God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. So what we need to understand is that repentance... Or lack thereof is evidence of having received the new birth, having been regenerated, having been changed by God in the inner man, such that we love the Lord and hate sin. Or if there is no repentance and there's hardness of heart instead in its place, it may be evidence that we are not regenerate people. So repentance is necessary unto salvation in a way. It does not earn or merit salvation as if we're saved by God looking at how good we repent and then judging us on the merits or demerits of our repentance. But repentance inevitably and invariably accompanies salvation. And so we may say with John Owen, as I quoted him earlier, in that sense that I just described, that everyone who does not really and truly repent manifests that they have not been born of God. And everyone who really and truly repents manifests that they have been born of God. In view of this, there are different ways that we can try to ascertain the genuineness of someone's profession of faith. But none of those ways can be more helpful Then ascertaining the genuineness of repentance. Looking at the genuineness of repentance. If there is genuine repentance, that's evidence of the new birth. If there is not genuine repentance, that's strong evidence against a person having experienced the new birth. So how do we tell if repentance is genuine? How do we tell in ourselves... If our repentance is genuine? How do we tell in others if their repentance is genuine? Tonight I'll give you three marks of genuine repentance. And let's begin with the first genuine repentance is more than a feeling. We just read a section from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Now I want you to notice something. Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife. And for other evil things, it says, that Herod had done. And in verse 20 of Luke chapter 3, we read that Herod added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. What I want you to see is that Herod felt something. So John preached and Herod felt something. So Herod was the guy who came to church, as it were, heard the preaching and felt something. Herod was the guy who came to church, heard the preaching of God's word, and experienced an emotional response to God's word. Inside. He wasn't the guy who was dismissive of the preacher. He wasn't the guy who acted as if it was just water off a duck's back. He wasn't the guy who just said, well, it's, you know, mildly interesting stuff. He wasn't the guy who offered a platitude of like, good sermon, pastor, or as unbelievers sometimes say, good speech. He wasn't that guy. He was the guy who heard the sermon and felt a strong feeling inside. But obviously it wasn't repentance. And so simply to have a strong feeling on the inside, a feeling of guilt, is not repentance. To have a feeling of shame is not repentance. It's likely those things that motivated Herod to respond by locking up John in prison. If he didn't feel guilty, if he didn't feel ashamed of the evil things that he had done, it's hard to see how he would have had such a strong reaction as to lock John up in prison. It's most likely that John's preaching hit home emotionally and that Herod felt guilt and felt shame about the evil things that he had done. And it's that that prompted him then to respond by locking up John in prison. Obviously, Herod was not repentant. So just note that: Genuine repentance is more than a feeling. What is it then? It's a change in behavior. Look at Luke chapter three a little bit earlier. In verse 10, John's preaching repentance and the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And John doesn't say, Oh no, no, it's not about works. It's a a gospel of grace. It's not about works. So as long as you feel remorseful for your sin, that's enough. As long as you just admit that you're broken, that's enough. John doesn't just say to the crowds, The main thing is just that you look to Christ, feel sorrow for your sin. That's not how John answers. Though that's how the question, what must we do, would be answered in many contexts, even church contexts in our day and age. What must we do? There is actually a required change in behavior. John instructs them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came and asked him, What shall we do? Soldiers also asked him, What shall we do? And John answers, Do this instead of that. Do this instead of that. See, John was not preaching anti-gospel. John was not coming just preaching salvation by works. John was coming in the stream of the Old Testament prophets... As those preparing the way for Christ Jesus himself and the New Testament revelation, which is all unified. The sum and substance of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The main focus is the gospel of salvation by grace. To be received through faith. And yet, throughout... And including here in Luke chapter 3, we preach that you need to turn to Christ in faith, but at the same time, you need to turn to Christ in repentance. This is where sometimes we who preach this way come under attack. People say, well, you're sneaking works in, this is legalism. You're no longer preaching grace. Well, let me remind you of what I said at the beginning. We're not saying you need to repent in order to earn salvation. We're not saying you need to repent in order to merit salvation. Just as we're not saying you need to merit salvation or earn salvation by your faith. We're not saying that your faith or your repentance are meritorious and that you earn salvation by these things. Your salvation is earned by the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. Jesus lived a perfect life in the place of sinners who will trust in His perfect record. Who will lay hold of His perfect record and claim it as their own. I plead the works of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross bearing the penalty that sinners deserve. For anyone and everyone who will lay hold of Jesus' crosswork and say, look, count my sin as paid for because I'm trusting in the shed blood and broken body of Christ. It is Jesus' life and death, which is the basis of our salvation. He earned it for us. He merited it for us. But listen, this is how it works. We lay hold of that by faith. And that faith comes from a heart that has been changed by God to no longer want to be in sin, to no longer love sin, to no longer pursue that which leads to our death. We've realized because God has opened our eyes, given us the new birth, we realize that the way we were living, though it seemed right to us, as the proverb says, ends in death. And we've realized the need to be rescued from the penalty of our sin. And God has shown us that Christ is the only sufficient rescuer. And that heart that has been changed so that it wants to be saved from the penalty of sin and look to Christ. Also no longer wants to live in it. Also no longer wants... To stay in the pigsty, so to speak. Drawing on the parable of the prodigal son. The heart that wants forgiveness from the father is found in the chest of him who has left the pigsty to go home. And so you don't actually have genuine trust in Christ without also having repentance toward God. Faith and repentance are always together in conversion. Whoever has not repented has not been born of God, as 1 John says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning has not been born of God, as John says. Whoever goes on sinning has neither seen God nor knows God, John says. The heart that has been changed... To look upon Christ as Savior. To cling to Him. To plead His righteousness. To plead His cross work. That heart no longer loves sin. But wants to trust in Christ. And obey Christ. And that leads to a change in behavior. So as Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 says. In a specific case. So we may generalize. Let me read it to you. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's not just feel something in your heart, it's stop doing something, and it's also start doing something else. It's a turning away from the actions, the words, the attitudes which flowed from a wicked heart toward new actions, new attitudes, new words which flow from a changed heart. If it's theft, no longer steal. Labor. Try to even earn some extra income so that you may have money to give away. Do the opposite of theft. Whatever it may be, start doing the opposite of it. If you are worshipping pagan gods, now turn to worship Yahweh. Whatever the case may be, turn from your wickedness toward the righteousness that God requires of us in His law. So genuine repentance is more than a feeling. Those who reduce it to a feeling are like the husband who says, I love you, but in all of his actions, acts as though he does not love his wife. He says, I love you, but he doesn't provide for her. He says, I love you, but he doesn't work together with her in the raising of the children and the maintenance of the home and so on and so forth. He says, I love you, but he doesn't give thought to her. He's out with the boys every night of the week late never doing anything around the house in fact he's out with the boys even during the day just neglecting to earn neglecting to provide and yet he comes home i love you i love you and she says look if you love me help me with some of this stuff like carry some weight and he's like oh, don't be like that come on baby don't be like that those who reduce repentance to just a feeling are condoning That kind of attitude, the I love you, I repent without the actions that ought to be attached to it. So genuine repentance is more than a feeling. But genuine repentance is not less than a feeling. And if I may play out that analogy a different way. Imagine a husband who says, I love you, and does provide for his wife and does work together with his wife in raising the children and maintaining the home and all of this stuff. Who does give thought to his wife's needs and concerns and so on and so forth. But his heart is elsewhere. And she knows it. And he admits it. His heart is elsewhere. He's going through all the duties. And he says, I love you. And look, I, I do all these duties for you. But his heart is somewhere else. Again, that would not really be The right kind of love between a husband and a wife. And neither is repentance merely just external duties. Genuine repentance is more than a feeling, but it's not less than a feeling. We ought to feel guilt and shame for our sin. We ought to feel a desire for holiness, a desire to please the Lord, a desire for righteousness. We ought to feel a desire for God's glory. The point is that that's accompanied by actions. But we ought to have our hearts engaged in repentance. In one of the most famous incidents in the New Testament, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And when he finishes, the crowds heard it. And it says they were cut to the heart. Repentance is not less than being cut to the heart when you read God's law and identify your shortcomings, it shouldn't just be a robotic acknowledgement of a deficit the way that if you plug into a calculator, 10 minus 11 will show up a deficit. It ought not to be that cold, calculated acknowledgement of deficiency but we ought to be cut to the heart this is what God requires of mankind and look this is how I've lived look at how I've sinned against my creator look at how I have dishonored him look at how I have rebelled against him we like those who heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost ought to be cut to the heart And that brings us to our third point. The first two where genuine repentance is more than a feeling. Genuine repentance is not less than a feeling. The third is that genuine repentance is God-worth. When we are cut to the heart, we're cut to the heart not only in respect to how our sin has affected others around us, other people, though that is involved, but we're cut to the heart with respect to our relationship to God. <clears throat> it's not just... I've gambled my family's life savings away. And now we're destitute. And I feel bad for how that affects my husband. How that affects my children. How that affects my wife. It's not just I feel bad that now I'm not going to be able to leave an inheritance to my children. It's not just I feel bad that now I have to mortgage my home. Remortgage my home. And we're back to square one where we were 25 years ago. It's not just this... Recognition of what has happened on a horizontal level and the gravity of that. We're cut to the heart with respect to our relationship to God. In Psalm 51 and verse 4, after committing adultery and murdering, the psalmist says, Against you, that is, O God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, strictly speaking, of course his sin was not only against God. He had committed adultery, which means his sin was against the woman involved and it was also against her husband. It was also against the citizens of his realm who would expect more of a leader of a theocratic nation which is governed by God through a divinely appointed king. It was against a number of people. Obviously, the murder was against the husband whom he killed. It was against the wife. It was against, again, several people. He clearly sinned against other people. So, strictly speaking, his sin was not only against God, but this is a figure of speech, the way that Jesus says, if anyone doesn't hate his father or mother, he cannot follow me, he cannot come after me, It's not worthy of me. It's not that we literally have to despise our parents, it's that there's this relative commitment to Christ, which transcends even our familial obligations and our familial ties and affections, that we are so committed to Christ that even if it means we must leave father and mother, even if it means we must experience their rejection or their alienation, it's not even a question for us. On a relative scale, our devotion to Christ supersedes any of those bonds. And so Christ calls it hating your father and mother. Likewise, here in Psalm 51, it's a figure of speech, relatively speaking. The sin is very much against other people. But David is just so aware that he has sinned against God that he puts it in relative terms, overstating the case by hyperbole or exaggeration. Against you, you only have I sinned. In order to communicate the Godward nature of his sin and the Godward nature of his repentance. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle says, We make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so as he thinks about the judgment day and how he lives, he sums it up like this, We make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. And so there's this overarching motivation, not just to escape consequences on the horizontal level. There's this motivation, not just to reconcile things on a horizontal level and smooth things out on a horizontal level. There is this motivation to get things right with God. As David says back in Psalm 51, which we sang earlier in the service O God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. O God, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. O God, let me hear joy and gladness. O God, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. O oh God, hide your face from my sins. O oh God, blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. As David wrestles with his sin, he wrestles with it in a Godward way. He recognizes that the sin is not only on the horizontal plane, but also on the vertical And he resolves to change. You could put Paul's words in David's mouth. From now on, it's going to be my aim to please you. Create in me a clean heart, O God, so that I might make it my aim to please you. This is what transpires in the heart in genuine Christian repentance. Unbelievers, of course, can change their ways. Look, in case you were not sure about it, taking up the use of illicit drugs, meth or crack or whatever, is actually not good for you. It's not good for your career. It's not good for your family life. Unbelievers have recognized this. Even addicts have recognized this and have sought to amend their ways and many of them have got clean. Look, that's not Christian repentance. That's just self-interested Change, which makes sense. I'm not knocking it, and I'm happy for the addicts who got clean. But look, that's not distinctly Christian repentance. That's just self interested self improvement. Right? Or maybe someone does it for the sake of their kids. Right? They saw how their addiction was affecting their family, and so they changed their ways for the sake of their kids. Or they saw that they were about to lose their spouse. And so they change their ways for the sake of maintaining their marriage, whatever it is. Look, even unbelievers can do that. Genuine Christian repentance has reference to God. There is a feeling of guilt and shame for our sin, which settles on us as we come under God's Word. There is a disdain for our sin and a revulsion. We are repelled by our sin and we are desirous of a right walk with God. We are desirous of a fixed communion with God, which has been interrupted by and broken by sin. And we seek to amend our ways. To stop doing that which was displeasing to God. And now we make it our aim to please Him. Our heart changes. Our behavior changes. Our our attitudes. Our actions. Our words change. But alongside whatever horizontal motivations we have. Our marriage. Our kids. Our career. Whatever. Whatever. For the Christian, where there is genuine repentance that accompanies salvation, there is a Godward reference. I don't like the fact that my sin displeases God. I'm concerned about the way that I've been living because it displeases God. Because it dishonors God. God. It is these very things which put Christ Jesus on the cross. And I love Christ Jesus, and I shudder to think that when they nailed him there, it was for my sins. These very things. And I want to turn away from those things. Because I love him who bought me, who purchased me with his blood. I love him through whom I have salvation. I love him. In whom there is now no condemnation for me. I want communion with God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In which I have come to stand in Christ Jesus. Which I have had the opportunity to experience in and through Christ Jesus. I don't want to live in a way that dishonors the God who created me and the God who redeemed me. I want to please Him. I want to glorify Him. I want to exalt Him in my life. Of course I don't want to lose my marriage. Of course I don't want to do anything that would hurt or harm my kids. Of course I'm not trying to self-destruct my own career. Obviously the horizontal things are at play, even in Christian repentance. But there is that vertical dimension to genuine Christian repentance. How does this affect my relationship with God? I want, I need things to be right with God in my life. I'm concerned to walk closely with God. Whatever it may cost me on the horizontal realm. If it cost me my marriage. If it cost me my kids. If it cost me my career. Look, those are secondary things. I'm not saying I'm unconcerned about them, but those are secondary things. What I need most is to get things right with God, whatever it costs. Genuine repentance is more than a feeling. Genuine repentance is, however, not less than a feeling. Genuine repentance has a Godward aspect to it some applications in conclusion. First, you ought to carefully consider the genuineness of your own repentance. How frightening the prospect of being among those to whom the Lord says in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't overlook the gap in your own life between Professing to belong to Christ and yet being a worker of lawlessness, as those described in Matthew chapter 7 will have done. You realize each and every one of those people were workers of lawlessness. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 7. But each one of those were professors of faith in Christ. If they were careful, to note the gap and to address the gap honestly, they would not have been surprised on judgment day. So Christian, if there is a gap in your life, note it. If you are a worker of lawlessness and yet you profess to belong to Christ, give careful consideration to that gap and amend your ways. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. Ask Him to make you what you ought to be. If you are a total hypocrite, not yet trusting in Christ, and you know it, or you come to know it, admit that and come to Christ even for the first time. If that's what your self examination leads you to, don't just. maintain a charade until that last day and have Christ say to you depart from me I never knew you and as you give careful consideration to the gap between your profession and your actual pursuit of holiness don't forget that God sees not just the outward actions but also the heart you need to be repenting not only of outward sin that others may see, but repenting of that sin which only God could possibly see. That's what genuine Christianity looks like. And by definition, no one else could catch you in the kind of heart hypocrisy that many maintain. But you need to give sober consideration to that. And if you have hypocrisy as the dominating principle in your heart. Be forewarned that Christ does not know workers of lawlessness who merely profess they belong to Him. Second, John Owen points out that as we judge ourselves, we may recognize that we are, in fact, truly repentant. And yet... The imperfection that we see in our own repentance will keep us humble. We see that we are sincerely but very much imperfectly repentant. This gives us evidence of the new birth, but also evidence of remaining corruption. And we are reminded that we are not so very far removed. From those who are still totally given over to their sins. There go I, but for the grace of God. We realize that we are actually much closer to the unbeliever down the street than to the thrice holy God to whom we have been reconciled in Christ. And that should keep us humble. This kind of sober examination, Owen says, takes away the ground from all pride, elation of mind, self-pleasing. Where this self-judgment is constant, they can have no place. Bear this in mind, Christian, as you examine the repentance of others. Even if you yourself are repentant, there remains much that is wrong with you and much that is deficient in your own repentance. And so you ought not to become haughty in your dealings with other sinners. Third, you ought nevertheless to consider the genuineness of the repentance of your brothers and sisters in the local church to which you belong. You are responsible in part for their souls. Do you see an absence or even a waning of the kind of repentance that we have described here tonight? Then your brother or sister is in peril. Don't be a security guard asleep on the night watch while the enemy approaches those whom you have been appointed to stand watch over. Speak to your brother or your sister about it. If necessary, speak to the pastors of the church about it. Let's all watch over one another. Listen, it's our job together to help everyone get home to God safely. We are on a journey through this world. There are many dangers, toils, and snares. And it is God's grace that has brought us safe this far, and it is God's grace that will lead us home. But one of the graces that the Lord has instituted to be a means to help us get home is the local church. It is extremely important to me insofar as humanly possible that each and every one of the members of this church gets home to God. Obviously at the end of the day I'm not God but it is my desire before God to do what I can to make sure each and every member gets home. And we may go at different speeds, and we may fall into different dangers and toils and snares along the way. But if you fall in, I want to try to help you get out. And if I fall in, I would ask that you try to help me get out. And we all need to have that kind of attitude as we walk together through this world. That's what church membership basically is. If one of us stumbles and falls, the rest of the troop shouldn't just keep moving. Or worse, turn around and shoot the wounded like I mentioned this morning. Sometimes we might need to carry one another for a season. Sometimes the whole troop may need to slow down in order that we could all pitch in together and rescue someone from whatever the situation is. But basically, a a proper metaphor for church membership is journeying together on our way home to God. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we all get there. So if you see someone going toward a danger or toil or a snare, including the waning of repentance, don't just turn a blind eye or be inactive. We've got to help one another get home. And then, fourth and last, remember the gospel. Again, coming full circle to what I said at the beginning. It's not the thoroughness or the exhaustiveness of our repentance that earns or merits salvation. It's the finished work of Christ. Look, if we all journey together and we all get to the pearly gates at the same time, and I hear any of you say, I plead the thoroughness of my repentance, I'm going to slap you upside the head. (laughs) We are not claiming the thoroughness of our repentance or the sincerity of our faith or the depth of our faith or anything like this when we get there. When we get there, we plead Christ Jesus that He lived for me. His righteousness is mine. He absorbed in Himself the penalty that I deserved for my sin. He has answered all of the just claims of God's law that were upon me. He's my representative. He's my substitute. I plead Christ Jesus. Repentance is merely diagnostic. Repentance helps us recognize whether there has really been that change of heart that recognizes the danger and the destructiveness of sin, and wants to be rescued from it in its penalty, in its power, in its presence, and wants to turn to Christ in order that we might be free not only from its penalty, but also from its power and also from its presence. Repentance is diagnostic as to whether your heart has changed with respect to sin and with respect to Christ so examine yourself and examine others your brothers and sisters in the church with respect to genuine repentance diagnose but as you diagnose don't deviate from the gospel